Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Coming up on the show today, Maria Popova, author of the new book with Oksana Shevel, Russia and Ukraine, Entangled Histories, Diverging States. Uh, Maria, welcome to Bookstack. Good afternoon. Congratulations on the new book. Uh, and so why do Russia and Ukraine have such entangled histories but diverging states? So the argument that we make uh, in the book, and we focus on the last, uh, really on the last 30 years. I mean, with entangled histories, you could go back really far. And we do mention, of course, that the entanglement goes way before uh, through the centuries, way before the collapse of the Soviet Union. But uh, the book really focuses on the sort of disentanglement over the last 30 years as uh, Ukraine and Russia embarked on uh, building independent states. And they could have developed sort of in parallel and they could have remained uh, significantly entangled. But what really happened was that they started diverging from the very start. And what we point out at the beginning, as the beginning of this divergence, is really a misalignment between how Ukraine and Russia perceived the collapse of the Soviet Union. We argue that in uh, Ukraine, the end of the Soviet Union was really, and uh, the first Ukrainian president, uh, Kovchuk, actually famously said that it was a civilized divorce. And, and so the assumption was that they're now separate countries and they're going to be building independent states. And in Russia, we sort of use the same uh, kind of marriage metaphor and we show that, in fact, in Russia, the collapse of the Soviet Union was perceived not really as the end of common statehood, but as a forced critical juncture in which this type of marriage was done, but there would be a rewriting of the vows, that there will be some sort of new arrangement that's going to work better, but nonetheless um, will keep the two countries tied to each other. And what we argue is that this sort of misalignment created what became sort of an escalatory cycle, a self-reinforcing dynamic in which the more that Ukraine committed to its independent statehood and to a distinctive identity, the more Russia pushed to try to bring Ukraine back and the more Russia pushed to try to bring Ukraine back, the more Ukraine actually diverged even further. So, so that kind of cycle led to this divergence between the two states, not only in identity, where uh, Ukrainians started committing more and more to a distinctive identity, and Russians committed more and more to an imperial identity, but it also led to divergence in regime type, where uh, Ukraine democratized and Russia sort of slid back into authoritarianism, and eventually it started causing geopolitical divergence, uh, where Ukraine was looking more and more towards Europe and the West, and Russia became increasingly sort of anti-Western. Yeah, and it's it's one of the fascinating things about the book. I mean, obviously, we're talking around the two-year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. 
But one of the things that you show very clearly is that one of the reasons that this is going to be very, very difficult to get out of is because there are so many of these different areas that you've just described there that, yes, it's about geopolitics and foreign policy, but it's also about identity. It's also about culture. And it's about these two very different pathways, one uh, more authoritarian, the other, which you describe as an imperfect democracy. Indeed, it's really um, important to understand that solving the geopolitical debate will not solve the entire problem. Russia wants something way more than Ukrainian neutrality in terms of foreign policy. It has shown unequivocally throughout the 30 years, but even more in the last two years, uh, that what it wants is control of Ukrainian politics domestically. And one example uh, that we give um, so that people don't think that this is only the result of this war is that, for example, in 2008, when Ukraine received this vague promise that someday it will be a NATO member, Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov identified, was asked about what were the main problems in the Russia-Ukraine relationship. And he did not say NATO. He said the main problems are two problems, language policies that Ukraine pursues and interpretation of historical memory. And, and so he complained at length in 2008 about uh, some battle from the 1600s uh, that Ukrainians interpret one way and Russia interpreted a different way. So this has really characterized Russia-Ukraine relations for the last 30 years, that Russia has uh, pushed on these issues. And in the book, we talk about citizenship policies, we talk about language policies, um, historical memory policies. It has interfered in uh, Ukraine's political process through oligarchs. It has had opinions about how Ukrainian elections should go. So it goes way beyond uh, Ukrainian neutrality. And that explains why uh, Ukrainians are trying so hard to sort of extricate this, themselves from this uh, situation, because with this kind of pressure, they cannot have sovereignty and independent statehood. It, at some point, it becomes meaningless. Yeah, and I suppose we saw that in the recent interview that Tucker Carlson did with uh, with President Putin, that, you know, the first half an hour of that was essentially a lecture on history. And at various points in the book, you give examples, the famine during the Second World War and the way in which that's interpreted in Ukraine and the offence that Russians took at that interpretation. And, you know, it might be easy to say, well, these are just debates about history and do they really matter? The one thing that you show in the book is that, yes, they really do matter to Russia. And in many ways, they are at the very heart of this uh, war, which is now going on between the two countries. Yeah. And, and these debates don't have to matter. It's, it, they're not necessarily a function of a particularly complicated history, you know, the U.S. and Canada have different interpretations of the War of 1812, but no one's invading anyone over that kind of interpretation. They just, you know, disagree about the interpretation. And this is what um, could have been the relationship between Russia and Ukraine as well. They could have just agreed to disagree, 
pursue these interpretations, whatever uh, domestic politics in each country uh, determines to be the dominant interpretation. But unfortunately, in the Russia-Ukraine relationship, the difference is that Russia simply does not accept Ukraine's entitlement to its own interpretation. It actually interprets or casts Ukraine's diverging interpretation as an attack on Russia, not just an offense, but an attack on Russia, which is why Russia has recently uh, talked about Ukraine as being the anti-Russia. It's also uh, why they call any actor that disagrees with the Russian interpretation of history a Nazi actor. I mean, I think that's something that has uh, really become quite uh, evident. It always was to specialists, but to a broader public in the last two years, that when uh, Russia talks about the denazification of Ukraine, that's not really about actual Nazis, which exist in every country, and there's some of them in Ukraine, but not at all uh, important and, and consequential. Really, what Russia means is opposing Russia is a Nazi thing to do, and uh, therefore we need to wipe out that opposition. That's why they're talking about, you know, some of the Russian nationalists are now talking about the Nazi flying in Kazakhstan, um, because Kazakhstan is like moving away from uh, Russia's orbit a tiny bit. But that's part of it, that, you know, history is often contested in any uh, sort of setting. The question is whether you accept that others may have divergent interpretations or whether you want to impose yours. Uh, you mentioned uh, NATO uh, earlier. It's a question that's come up a lot on this podcast, the extent to which the West played a role in getting us to the position where we are now with these two countries at war. How, how do you interpret the way in which the EU and NATO behaved towards uh, Ukraine? You're pretty much going back to the end of the Cold War. So what we um, show in, in the book is that really uh, the narrative about the West sort of luring Ukraine uh, in towards its orbit or stealing Ukraine or, you know, being expansionist uh, really runs counter to the evidence in the sense that, in fact, what we observe from the record is exactly the opposite. Ukrainian representatives at different points pushing and trying to advocate for closer relationships with the EU, uh, with NATO, and and in fact, uh, the West being very skittish about it, very careful not to offend um, uh, Russian sensibilities and, and sort of trying to always find a, a compromise of some sort. And um, Russia and Ukraine were not at odds from the very start. In fact, in foreign policy, uh, their parallel tracks continued the longest. Ukraine was very much sort of uh, pursuing this multi-vector policy, as they called it during the 2000s, trying to be on excellent terms with both uh, the West and uh, with Russia, it was following a lot of uh, Russian initiatives when it came to relationship between Russia and the West. Uh, Ukraine was trying to be sort of in the same spot. Um, so the result of 
that geopolitical divergence really was actually the result of Ukrainians increasingly being concerned about the interference uh, by Russia and about increasingly aggressive moves by Russia. And one of the examples that we uh, give in the book goes way back, uh, way before the Bucharest Memorandum, where Ukraine was promised uh, NATO membership. It goes back to 2003, when um, when Russia unilaterally started building a dam on a tiny island which uh, belongs to Ukraine in the Kamp uh, Strait, where actually the Crimean Bridge is now anchored, now taken over by Russia. At that point in 2003, Ukraine has a pro-Russian president, President Kuchma, and Russia starts building this dam on Ukrainian territory. And Kuchma goes to um, Moscow and he tells the leading uh, Russian newspaper at that point, you have to understand, the more you build this dam, the more we look to the West for protection. And at that point, Russia backed off and did not build the dam. But the point is that the Ukrainians were increasingly concerned about these encroachments. And, and that's what increasingly and very, very, very slowly started turning Ukrainian public opinion towards wanting to pursue EU and NATO integration. What we see in the data is that um, the Ukrainian public does not commit to a geopolitical divergence until after Russia invades and takes Crimea. So you can't argue that, that the invasion was caused by something that actually only followed it. I suppose it's one of the interesting things, isn't it? Because you show in the book uh, very clearly how Ukraine initially, yes, saw itself as an independent foreign policy actor, but also in some ways saw itself as a via media between the West and Russia. On the other hand, uh, there the were people like George Kennan, the famous uh, foreign policy uh, analyst, one of the great Cold War uh, figures, who did say in the 1990s that that NATO and the European Union and the United States had to be very careful and that in many ways it comes back to the kind of history that you were talking about before, that that Western border had always been vulnerable, the Napoleonic Wars, uh, Germany in the First World War, Germany in the Second World War, uh, the threats of the Cold War and so on. Uh, and so that it was inevitable that Russia would be very concerned about the West encroaching as it saw it. Uh, on that Western border. Exactly. But let's think about what would have happened if Kennan had won the day and NATO had not expanded to Eastern Europe, to the Baltics, uh, to Poland. Where would we be today if, if that had not happened? The Baltics would be overrun by Russia even easier than Ukraine, uh, which has had a chance to resist as a big country. Also remember that leaving Eastern Europe in a security vacuum in the 1990s, what would that have uh, produced at that point? And in the book, we actually go through some, uh, some of these counterfactuals because they're not uh, the ones that uh, Mearsheimer, for example, imagines them to be. The counterfactual that uh, had NATO not expanded, Russia would be the benevolent uh, partner and everything would be hunky-dory. Uh, what was much more likely, precisely because the Eastern Europeans 
or aware of this long history of Russian expansionism and desire for domination, had NATO shut them out, they would have likely tried to form a regional alliance uh, that may be in some ways at odds with NATO because uh, it wouldn't be part of the same. It may have, uh, of course, made EU integration uh, more difficult for the entire space. So they're not uh, good outcomes uh, really coming out of this. And, and we see that Russia uh, became sort of expansionist very, very quickly. It's not like there was some sort of period in the 90s before the first NATO expansion in uh, the late 90s. We don't have a 90s in which Russia is a flourishing uh, democracy and a great partner of the West. We have Russia that is uh, challenging the West in the Yugoslav wars. We have Russia that is waging uh, a war in Chechnya and also in other parts of the post-Soviet space. We have uh, records of Yeltsin sort of asking Clinton to give him uh, Europe. So we don't have uh, a really benevolent partner, uh, Russia. So really what NATO expansion actually did was successfully safeguard the security of uh, a considerable portion of Eastern Europe, very tragically for Ukraine, not Ukraine's security. And that's why we're seeing uh, now this war. And as I said at the uh, top of the show, we're two years into the war now. Ukraine has just lost a major city, so that seems to represent some kind of shift. Where are we and where do you think this war is going? We are definitely in a very dangerous moment uh, for Ukraine. Yes, Russia has uh, made some progress in this city of Avivka, which, uh, in fact, to put things in perspective, though, Russia has been attacking for 10 years straight and has managed to capture it by just completely annihilating it and by losing uh, reportedly more Russian soldiers in that assault on that one small uh, Ukrainian city than the Soviet Union lost in the whole of the Afghanistan war. So it's a pyrrhic victory uh, for Russia, but a victory nonetheless and very dangerous not because of any strategic importance of that uh, victory, but because aid to Ukraine in the U.S. continues to be blocked, uh, in Europe uh, doing better, but still uh, we have sort of constant obstruction from Orban's Hungary. And it's, a, it's an important moment because this is the moment in which really the West needs to decide uh, whether... It wants Ukrainian victory uh, because if that's what the West wants to commit to, it means that um, military aid absolutely has to be unblocked and it has to increase. And we're seeing that right now things are, are kind of unbalanced. Uh, we could go. It's a critical juncture. We don't know exactly where things would go. On the one hand, Public opinion in the West, both in the U.S. and in Europe, continues to be supportive of Ukraine. So this is not really a public opinion, a sort of fatigue kind of issue. It's a political dysfunction issue where in Europe, the dysfunction is urban. Um, the rest of uh, 
the countries have it together. And in the U.S., we have uh, the MAGA uh, wing of the Republican Party basically holding everybody else uh, hostage on this on this funding. And this cannot go on forever, so to speak. Uh, something has to give uh, soon because otherwise the message of weakness that comes from the West will only embolden uh, the Putin regime to escalate this more. Putin has already stated on the record in the Tucker Carlson interview and any other interviews that he uh, gives that he is not willing to compromise in the sense that he wants to control Ukraine. He said, well, the West figure out how to sell this uh, to its own audience, but this is what Russia uh, needs to achieve. And the question is, is the West going to stand for that or is it going to help Ukraine protect its independence? And do you think that that eventually it will actually become both of those two things, as you alluded to there, funding for Ukraine is currently stuck uh, in the US Congress, but we're in an election year. Is it possible to imagine a situation uh, whereby the West does start uh, funding Ukraine again, but it also um, really escalates its efforts, its diplomatic efforts to find some kind of compromise solution to bring this war to an end? I think it's possible for the West to restart aid. I don't think a diplomatic solution is really possible and on the table because what Putin wants is control of the central Ukrainian government, not some territories. And that's what he calls denazification, right? Uh, so he wants this Ukrainian government uh, gone and he wants a Ukrainian government which will be pro-Russian. However, given that Ukrainian democracy right now is showing 90% of people opposed to a pro-Russian government, that's not an option. It has to be some sort of puppet. And I don't think this is a, a compromise in any meaningful sense of the word compromise. That's exactly what he set out to do in February of 22. So, um, the only possibility, I guess, that I could imagine of a, uh, of a compromise would be some sort of uh, frozen status for the occupied territories and then immediate NATO membership for the rest of Ukraine. But this is not something that we see either Putin or the West signaling as a possible solution here. So it doesn't seem possible to me at this point. And uh, what about the status of uh, Vladimir Putin uh, himself? We're speaking in the days after the death of Alexei Navalny. Uh, I wonder what impact that you think that might have. And more broadly, how is the war in Ukraine, which after all has taken so much longer than anyone ever would have predicted and has lost more lives, you point out in the book, than the old Soviet Union lost in fighting the war in Afghanistan, what do you think is the future for Vladimir Putin and his regime? So, so far, he seems uh, able to continue on and strong and whole. The only destabilization that we saw was the mutiny uh, by Prigozhin in, um, in June, but that was dealt with quickly and Prigozhin is dead. And on top of it, that was a challenge that was not on the correct side, so to speak. 
it was not to stop the war, but to escalate it even more and somehow conquer Ukraine uh, quicker. Navalny's uh, death, on the other hand, I think shows sort of the uh, tragedy of the situation because it shows that uh, Russian society does not have a critical mass ready to stop the war. It's been just a couple of days, but we're not seeing a major destabilization. We're seeing, you know, brave people laying flowers, but uh, nothing more than that. And what we're seeing is confirmation, really, of a point that uh, some in the Navalny camp were already making, that the best hope for the future of Russia is Ukrainian victory, that that's the, the route through which Russia could be forced to change from within, that we cannot really expect sort of a, a massive uh, uprising or some reformist figure coming to power. Those are kind of pipe dreams. Uh, really, the most realistic way to hold the Putin regime accountable and to destabilize it is a victory by Ukraine on the battlefield. So the best way really to honor Navalny's legacy would be to figure out how to make that happen. And and what does victory actually look like? Victory, uh, Ukrainians define this very uh, clearly. They want Russian troops out of their sovereign territory of 1991 borders. And if I think the sort of the count, the, the offensives of uh, the fall of 22 uh, really showed that this is possible. Less was achieved in this uh, summer counteroffensive, but what the summer counteroffensive showed was that Crimea is really not a red line for, uh, for the Russian regime. Uh, Ukraine disregarded sort of the status of Crimea as some sort of sacred cow. And they've uh, pushed uh, the Black Sea fleet away from Crimea. So the combination of these two uh, things tell us that Putin is ready to actually withdraw from Ukraine if pushed out and claim that this is sort of a much longer historical process. For now, this is a temporary setback. Um, but Russia prevented an invasion from NATO and so he, he has the, the potential to spin this. And if that leads to some sort of opening and instability at home, then maybe Russian society can, can take this somewhere. But, but for Ukrainians, the victory would be simply evicting Russia from their territory. So the book is Russia and Ukraine, Entangled Histories, Diverging States. It's written by my guest, Maria Popova. Uh, with Oksana Shevel and published by Polity. Uh, but for now, Maria, congratulations again and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you very much for having me. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Laura Silverman and this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. <laughs>